Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. I'm Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. And on Twitter at thearrangerspod. Thanks for tuning in. Greetings, everybody. This is Aaron Hedenstrom. And uh, Drew here. Hello, everyone. We are coming at you. We hope you're enjoying your summer. I certainly am. But uh, we wanted to do an episode that's sort of a more pragmatic topic, in, in particular, making money as a professional arranger composer. So this, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about composing music, arranging music, and maybe some of the um, related types of work that can help you make a living and really make a go at this whole thing, which, uh, as you know, is a challenge, and it's not the easiest path, but if you're really passionate about this, it can be a wonderful life. Yeah, if uh, you're passionate and persistent, it can be part of your income stream. It can be an entire, the whole thing of your income stream. Many musicians who are freelancers, uh, make this part of their income stream, as that's a very wise move, as being part of the creative processes is a really great move. Um, but really quick, before we begin, I just wanted to point out, Aaron, that we're, we get to celebrate episode 20. Hey! It's kind of snuck up on us, because we were, we were just uh, recording today, and we were like, what episode is this? And yeah. uh, the the, the previous thing we recorded was episode 19, so we were like, no way. Um, so thanks, guys, for sticking with us and for listening to our podcasts. We're having a good time doing it, and we, we're so thankful that we've gotten positive feedback and that people from the arranging community are enjoying it. So thanks, thanks for your listenership. Yeah, let's keep going all the way to 100 and beyond. What do you say, Aaron? We'll see how long we can do this. Yeah, awesome. So, uh, I guess we can start with the obvious thing. Aaron, what's the most obvious way that we as arrangers and composers can make money? Well, composing. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) this is a discipline rather than an income stream, but within the realm of composing, there are a lot of different income categories that we can kind of divvy up here, so... For me, I got into writing music as a composer rather than as an arranger. I always looked up to composers like George Gershwin and Tchaikovsky and and, uh, the great jazz composers. So for me, composing is kind of my first love. I, I got into composing before I got into arranging. And the challenge with composing is that it's not necessarily a direct, easy way to make money because... For arranging, a lot of times you're doing something functional that someone hires you for, mm-hmm. um, you know, or some or or you're arranging a piece that somebody already knows, and so you kind of have a a way to connect with people and audiences and so forth. With composing, you really are presenting new material to the world, and that presents challenges. But um, let's just get started. Uh, with different ways that you can leverage that to make some income. So let's say you compose a a number of pieces and 
you publish and sell the sheet music or right. the recordings of these of these tunes. Yeah. Lots of people have done this throughout time and uh people who came to our mind were people like Frank T. Kelly, uh Maria Schneider, Darcy James Argue, Gordon Goodwin, uh just a, many of the more famous composers uh, as a comp- when you're the composer, you get to keep the entire song. You are the author and the creator of that work, so you immediately own all the publishing and uh and that's that's a, a if you decide to sell that that's your prerogative but that's a you can make recordings of these works and if they sell well that can be a great way to of making money and this requires you to really earn the trust of the people that are going to buy this music right now the market for original compositions in the jazz style or in the contemporary styles tend to be educational scenarios a lot of times maybe mm-hmm. you have uh Maybe you have other situations, maybe you have churches or musical theaters or or things like that, but if you're composing original music that's instrumental, for example, or maybe it's for uh, orchestra or choir, you're, you're probably shooting for the educational market, and that's... The good news is that there's a lot of schools in the world, and if you can earn the trust and the reputation to have a voice as a composer that people want, that people want to perform, that thrills and excites the students so that it's actually a, an advantage for the teacher to play your music, then I think you can do really well at this. Uh, the people we mentioned, Frank DeKelly in the concert band world, uh, Eric Whitaker in mm-hmm. the, both the concert band and the choral world have done a tremendous job at this. Maria Schneider in the jazz world. Darcy James Argue also in the jazz world. Uh, and these are just a few examples of many. Certainly. And with that comes uh, another income stream, which is not only selling this music to those schools, but then being commissioned by those schools to produce more original material that then you can go and publish and sell to other schools. Um, and so... Uh, you can sometimes get commissioned by pro ensembles, but like uh, Aaron said, uh, schools and on- school ensembles are the main way of of uh, earning their trust and 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 uh, and getting commissions uh, this way, and they can be quite profitable. And uh, if you have a number of commissions on your plate, not only did you create a new work, but it's another piece that you can go and sell. So it can be a great revenue stream. Another positive with the commission thing is you're making an impact in the education of whoever you're writing for. Like if you write a high school piece for a jazz ensemble, they're getting the benefit of composing a brand new work. They get to actually see the composition process in action to see, to actually meet a composer. Um, So there's usually like a educational element to commissions. Certainly. So if you're someone that gravitates towards education and you like to work with students and you like to kind of contribute to a a school's community, this can be a really rewarding path. Yes, in many, many ways. Many ways. Many composers will uh, choose to go into an avenue that's largely called library music. And so this is uh, music that is never or very rarely performed live. Um, it's music that is almost always created on the computer 
using uh, DAWs and, and MIDI software that is then uploaded to a, a, a library or a bank in which uh, uh, creators of film and radio and other kinds of content who need music for their creation can then license your music and pay you to use your piece. It, it's used a lot in B films and radio and advertisements, commercials, podcasts even. And so this is a, a, a way that some people choose to make money um, by making a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of library music. And then uh, once you have enough content up there, people who need that music can download it and stream and use it for their own purposes. And you get a piece of profit as you go. Right. It's, it's kind of like you're creating background music for, you know, functions like uh, any kind of media you can think of. Um, and the advantage is that you don't really have anyone telling you how to do it unless you're working for a library that's requesting a specific type of music, which some people do that. But if you're an independent library music contributor, you can basically write the, the music that you like to write and then um, accumulate a library of, of that. So that can be, you know, for, for some people, they really enjoy that. Personally, mm -hmm. never got into it, right, at least at, at Me the, neither. for the time being. But, uh, you know, not enough time in the day to do, to do all these different things. But Certainly um, not. But I know that a lot of people uh, really enjoy it. You know, composing music for, for films, musical theater, video games, TV shows, radio, all these things, advertisements. Um, this is a very, very fickle industry that seems to be constantly changing. Um, in terms of the uh, the general practices, both business-wise and musically, but um, there's uh, you know there's never been more outlets for people to make films and for people to make video games. Um, mm -hmm. So theoretically, that that work is out there, and uh, um, it may require you to move to a location like L.A. There's other cities, London. So on some, and so forth. Seattle, some sometimes, somewhat. Seattle and Vancouver, I, yeah, uh, are are also big on that. So it, it's tough to break in. You have to be very persistent and sacrifice a lot from the people that you know that I've heard talk about it. Um, again, that's not really my lifestyle. Is not working in those mediums as much, but but you know, some people really feel uh, drawn to that type of music. Mm hmm. And it's a perfect segue because in, in some ways, composing for film and video games is almost more like arranging because you really have to fit the, the context like a glove. It, you're mm -hmm. not really free to express yourself as nearly as much as one might think. Directors and producers can be very particular about what they want. And so... Uh, you know, if they want something uh, sensuous and uh, but evocative, and you give them something that's just you know sensuous, then they might be like, "No, this isn't good enough," and uh, we need something more evocative. And uh, you're going back to the drawing board, saying, "Oh man, I really like what I wrote." In that way, it's it's almost more like arranging, and uh, that brings up the next topic, which is in. A, under the umbrella of writing music to make a living, you have composing, and then you have arranging. 
which we need to talk about because this is the Arrangers podcast, after all. <laughs> in um, theory. In theory. And uh, arranging, as Aaron mentioned before, is often more practical. Um, and so sometimes if you're a very wonderful person like Oliver Nelson or uh, Jeremy Lubbock or Don Sebesky, you get to express yourself a little more when a particular project comes along that they want your particular arranging prowess and personal style. But a lot of the other times, you need to fit the needs of the client. Um, and so if they want a Frank Sinatra pop show, you better give them Nelson Riddle and Sammy Nestico. Otherwise, uh, lest you give them Darcy James Argue, uh, your client might... Uh, <laughs> uh, spread the word about you and never hire you again. <laughs> Nothing wrong with Darcy James argue, but not for sounding like Sinatra. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of uh, relating to this idea of knowing your gig, you know, really feeling out the situation because, you know, every person that hires you is, is in a situation where they need something. And if you're arranging for someone who wants something extremely specific then you might have to bend some of your preferences for them to make them happy. And frankly, they're paying you, and if, if they're paying you good money, then that makes it easier to, to do, for me at least, mm -hmm. because then you can say, well, cool, uh, this is what you're paying me to do. I, I want to make you happy. Now, if it's more of a collaboration where they give you a little more leeway and you know this person well or they seem like they're open-minded, uh, that can be a really nice thing too. Um and it just, I think, uh, well, Drew, you, you uh, tell me what you think of this, but um, I've, I've kind of found that just communicating with your clients and just kind of asking them questions, getting to know kind of what they're after, and then you kind of figure out how much license are you going to give me? Do you, mm -hmm. you know, asking questions like, do you want me to stick to the script of kind of, a certain style or do you want or do you want me to have some freedom and that's one of the hard things about arranging professionally when you're trying yeah. to <laughs> you're trying to figure out somebody's intention and yes. um it can be kind of nebulous but it's that's <laughs> to me that to me is the the real the real challenge with arranging working with people <laughs> It can yeah. be such a drag. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of parallels to to things like graphic design. I mean, I, yes. I talk to uh, I talk to friends of mine that are graphic designers, and they have the same kind of experiences where, you know, a client says, you know, I want this to be blue instead of red, and the designers, you know, if if they're not careful, they might go a little too far in um, fighting the client when you know. At the end of the day, you kind of have to have a happy medium in, mm -hmm. in some ways. And you, yeah. can, you can get really good at kind of uh, discussing why you think it should be red and they think it should be blue. And maybe one of you convinces the other that, hey, okay, cool. Well, I can, I can you know, sacrifice my idea if you mm -hmm. really feel that way, you know. Right. Exactly. Yeah, arranging can be sticky. Um, but... It can be also very satisfying when, uh, like, I had to do some arranging, very, not my bag, but it was for a classical string orchestra, and uh, 
I just, you know, I got to make it sound like Mozart or Haydn, no jazz chords, triads, um, sometimes mm. four notes. Oh boy. But when I heard it and they performed it with such vigor and uh, enthusiasm, I was like, oh, even though I didn't really put my heart and soul into this, I'm actually proud of what I did because it fit the bill and they were really happy. And that in turn brought me some joy. And so, mm -hmm. um, but, and that, I, everyone's different. And I love being, that's, I, you mentioned that you started in the industry as a composer, Aaron, and I definitely started as an arranger. And that's, I love being a chameleon and uh, uh, getting on all sorts of different skins and, and figuring out how to sound like a gospel arranger and then the next day like Haydn. And, mm -hmm. um, and not, and Aaron, anyone who knows Aaron knows that he's amazing at that as well. Um, but, uh, but then it's also fun going into the composing role and saying, you know what, I'm going to do what I do. And sometimes it's like, what is that? <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, but right. And it's, it's kind of a, uh, you know, not to get too, uh, deep with this, but, but soul searching and, and kind of asking yourself the questions mm -hmm. of, you know, what do I really want to do with my career? Um, you know, as I get older, I mean, I have a, a one-year-old, I, I have a wife and, I tell you the uh I'm only 30 so like it's not like I'm some <laughs> some old Don't wise guy age, with, Jared. Don't do with it. all with all this wisdom or something but you know I just find that as uh as life progresses as an adult into uh you know different phases it really becomes clearer and clearer that you got to make choices you can't do everything you know in college you kind of have this facade that hey maybe I can do everything and try all these different things and I think uh, you know, realistically, and it's not a bad idea to try lots of things. It's that's the time oh, yeah. to do it for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely, when you're young, you you can you can test the waters and see what you like. But eventually, you have to at least do some narrowing down and figure mm -hmm. out realistically how how much time in a day can you devote to what you do and still you know maintain your life's uh, you know healthy life healthy life choices. So. Right. Um, that was a tangent. It's a great tangent. That's why we have a podcast, so we can just go on tangents all the time. Sweet. Yeah, totally. We should we should uh, start a new podcast called the Arranging Tangents Podcast. <laughs> the unheard heard episodes episode tangents. Yeah. Oh my! So arranging can be from anywhere from symphony to uh, studio uh, orchestra or big band. Or even just writing horn lines for uh, a cover band. All sorts of groups. And uh, often as an arranger, you'll be asked to uh, make a demo of your arrangement to make sure that the client will be happy once the final product is there. So having MIDI skills is can be really helpful. So that way you can make good demos and working with clients can be a lot easier once they have a true oral representation of what you've done. Before we uh, move on from that thought, I just wanted to piggyback on that by saying, you know, 50 years ago, you had to be able to write music on paper if you wanted to be an arranger. Mm -hmm. Now you have to know the computer skills of Logic, Pro Tools, Ableton, Digital Performer. doesn't matter that much which software you use, but you just, it is, it is what writing on paper used to be. You have to, you have to do it, you know. It's, it's so um, true. 
we're kind of the the in-betweeners drew because we you know yes our age group is kind of we're millennials but barely mm-hmm. and uh so we still picked up on a little bit of the old school way but if if uh if any youngsters are hearing this learn yeah. your computer skills it's it so will, critical it will not fail you yeah in today's musical economy yeah what's next aaron orchestrating this is a discipline that is much like arranging except Mm -hmm. it's specifically dealing with the the art of distributing musical materials to an instrumentation that's given to you so you might have a a gig where there's a composer who comes up with the main themes and the main songs maybe they give you a, a a piano version that has the basic information and then as an orchestrator your job might be to fill it out with uh, strings or flute or trumpet and it could be any configuration of instruments mm-hmm. but um, it's a discipline in and of itself that requires careful study and practice and care you know yes the last real vestiges that really have dedicated orchestrators are really only musical theater folks and uh, film uh people because um the turnaround needed to do these projects is often so quick that the role of composing arranging and orchestrating often done by just one person in in many cases are usually divided up into three jobs so in the musical theater world you have the composer or the songwriter who might know nothing about theory clinking out a tune and writing some uh lyrics the arranger or musical director often uh, as well will t- adapt the song and create this verse chorus structure add extra bars for the bridge and create tension and figure out where it's going to end but then he or she has to continue directing the play uh, and rehearsing and so it's the orchestrator's job then to uh, take the specific arrangement can't change any bars as Aaron said just a, a, a put it into the various instruments, sometimes adding counter lines um, uh, as necessary to create more drama, but it's usually just a strict orchestration job. And so um, that's musical theater and films are really the only, are well, the, f- most other times when you're orchestrating, you're also arranging. And so it's a very special thing to be doing orchestration for the, uh, for the musical theater or film industries. As a composer and an arranger, you're also an orchestrator too. Like exactly, you know, you're writing a piece for jazz band or concert band or what what have you. You're also dealing with the art of orchestration. So, you know, theoretically, if you're practicing those, you'll have some experience with orchestration as well. The market for orchestrators is maybe smaller than it used to be, but you know that being said, there are a number of people out there that compose by playing musical ideas into their DAW using a MIDI keyboard or a mm-hmm. guitar or uh, whatever. And maybe they don't have formal musical theory training and they don't know how to write it out. And so maybe as a uh, orchestration specialist, you can be the guy that takes someone's MIDI sketch and writes it out for the instrument, you know, the instrumentalists. Right. So right. there's, uh, you know, there's definitely some opportunities out there if you... Uh, if you look hard enough. Mm-hmm. So there's a few more ways you can make money as a writer of music. And uh, something that 
we've both done quite a bit of is uh, transcriptions or colloquially called lifts, um, where there's a recording that uh, a band or an orchestra wants to play live, but the sheet music does not exist. And so you are hired as a talented arranger and person with a good ear to take down the music as it exists onto sheet music for the ensemble to play and perform. This is uh, actually a um, pretty significant part of how I make my income as a musician. And over the years, I have developed a few um, you know, trusted clients that have uh, come back to me over and over for, for these lifts and these transcriptions. A lot of times it'll be old Frank Sinatra or um, Andy Williams or, you know, the kind of the Rat Pack stuff, old big band arrangements. Um, sometimes it'll be like I, I've done tribute shows for, for different things where uh, actually this one that I'm working on right now for, the, for later this month is called uh, Score. And it's basically just songs from different films that uh, we're going to perform at Orchestra Hall with this great group called The New Standards. Mm, and how fun. They, that's a group that has hired me a number of times. Uh, it took a while to kind of develop the relationship with them and kind of develop a working relationship. How, do, how does this process work the best? The first couple of times required a lot of, you know, rewrites and kind of, oh, we changed the form on this. And we've gotten the process down a lot better. And this time it's been the smoothest yet. But uh, what it is, you know, what this particular project is, it's just they give me a bunch of film tunes and uh, things like Goldfinger from James Bond and uh, a bunch of Burt Bacharach tunes, Jerry Goldsmith, and I transcribe them. And, and they, you know, mm-hmm. who can afford to hire a full orchestra? So we have a string quartet, we have three horns, and then we have, uh, you know, a rhythm section. So, right. So my job is to take these lush orchestral arrangements and transcribe them and then find a way to adapt them so that it sounds good with a smaller instrumentation. And that's, it's really rewarding for me because every time I do it, it works on my ear training. It works on my knowledge of, of classic music. It challenges me with how to notate certain things. And it gives me ideas for my own music. It's, uh, it's really cool to, to look at all these classic film scores and, and really see what's going on. It's like going to school. And uh, thankfully, with situations like this, it pays. Yeah, right. And yeah, like you said, it's, it's, uh, it's not just transcription, but you as an arranger are making arranging decisions to reduce the ensemble down to what it needs to be for the performing ensemble. And so it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of artistic decisions get made, practical, but artistic decisions uh, that what's going to sound best? How's it going to sound fullest? Or how's the whole point going to be brought across the best? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it can be, I've done some of that too for some big band going down to five horns. And so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, very, very common way to do it. So a couple other ways that people make money writing music. Uh, what, what do we got, Aaron? Functional music stuff for church. A lot of people I know have done that. And um, corporate events. One of our previous guests, Adi Yeshaya, mm-hmm. just put together a gig for a corporate event for the uh, 3M Corporation, where he arranged all these tunes 
for a small kind of a condensed big band and it was for like an award ceremony for their company um yeah i actually just did one for the harvey martin dream foundation down here in dallas little cool string sextet thing yeah Yeah, it's, it's it's not very common but when it happens it it can be kind of fun and they can be you know again they can be good money so yeah yeah Another way that people make money in today's day and age is um, using online platforms such as YouTube, Patreon, and Bandcamp. Uh, I would say streaming services like Spotify, but no one's making money off of that, so let's not kid ourselves. Nope. But, um, you know, people are people like Jacob Collier, Michael League with Snarky Puppy, Wolfpack, acapella groups such as Accent, Pentatonix, are putting their original arrangements or compositions up on YouTube. Um, and then a lot of these guys are making money off of uh, donations on Patreon from fans that just want to support what they do. Right, totally. And uh, it can it, it can take a long time to build an online audience, but once you have enough people who follow you, and if you're creating popular music, or or have a very niche audience who are dedicated and loyal, that can be another income stream. And so, being entrepreneurially savvy and always be thinking about ways of uh, making money while you sleep as uh, they like mm-hmm. to say is yep. uh, is is almost always a good move so speaking of making money while you sleep we're finally moving out of the writing umbrella and there's several other smaller umbrellas um but no less significant and the first of which is publishing and so what is publishing that is making money off selling the sheet music or when other people use your composition and and make a cover of it, they have to pay mechanical royalties on that recording. And so that can be another wonderful income stream. If you you have a major publisher, like one of the big two for jazz music that Alfred and Hal Leonard, and there's a bunch of other uh, classical music ones, but... um, or some of the other smaller publishers like Kendor, Sierra, Walrus, E-Jazz Lines. I know uh, both Aaron and I are published through uh, Sierra, um, and we both have our own self-publishing companies. Um, do you, are you published through anyone else as well, Aaron? Um, I publish some of my charts through a uh, small publisher called Really Good Music, which is based in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. The guy who runs it his name is ron keezer he's actually jeff keezer's dad the uh the oh, wow. jazz pianist and um he runs it out of his house and what's nice about it is that he'll publish whatever you want to publish with them and he is a great guy but he he allows you to maintain your own rights theoretically you can publish with him and still self-publish the same chart on your own website and that way you have it on two different distribution platforms Wow. So that's nice. And uh, it's been educational too because, you know, I can ask him questions about things. And for example, I had this arrangement I did uh, while I was in college of the Jobim tune, How Insensitive, which I wanted to publish with really good music. And so Ron said, okay, I'm going to check with the Tom rights Jobim owners. Estate. Well, it turns out that the owner of this tune is actually Hal Leonard. And Right. They've gobbled up so many rights to so many songs they have all of mm-hmm. stevie wonder's songs and yeah many other artists so ron kind of uh approached them to try to work out a deal where you know maybe they get 30 
Ron gets 30, I get 40 or something percent of the the uh, royalties, but but they did not allow us to do that. So, anyways, uh, all that to say, there's uh, there's some avenues out there, and mm-hmm. um, they can be nice. It's difficult to get arrangements published. It's very difficult. So that's why compositions are all the rage for publishing, for self-publishing or for some of the major distributors and publishing companies. But that's why it's that's why people are always craving a hit. Because uh, it's not only just the initial bump in the money, but all the other people who want to cover it, and uh, they they will pay you royalties, mechanical and uh, publishing royalties, to buy the music and then to record it. And so, and then anytime that it's performed on the radio, you get a performance royalty that's paid out by ASCAP or BMI or one of the other uh, organizations who monitor these such things. And mm-hmm. so publishing can be a great income stream once you have all the ducks in the row to get this going and uh, get the machine going. In the meantime, yep. you try to just get as many things as you can published through yourself or someone else and try to enter in the fray. Moving on from uh, publishing, you can also use your arranging talents as a producer or a music director Sometimes the lines can become blurred with some of these different roles. But, I mean, essentially what we're talking about with a producer is someone that comes in and kind of manages a project for a recording or maybe it's a live show. But the producer role is a little bit nebulous. It's not always easy to define. But basically they're the guy that kind of keeps the engine going and kind of keeps things in line and and oftentimes makes creative decisions um yeah personally i have not done a ton of this myself but drew i know you just uh got done with a producing gig so maybe you could speak to this oh yeah i i got to produce a singer uh down here in dallas um we did a a really interesting record but uh the whole thing is that as the producer, you're the main vision caster for the mm. project. And so even though you're serving the client the you uh, or whoever's paying for it, sometimes it's the record company, but nowadays uh, either you are going in halfway on it as a producer or sometimes in rare cases like this one I just did, the, uh, the, uh, it's independently uh, financed. And so you as the producer then are responsible for, like you said, keep the engine moving and cast the vision for the project. And so I, I did the arrangements, most of them, but I actually hired Aaron to do one of them. <laughs> so yeah, that was we, fun. We, we love working together. And, mm-hmm. um, and so he was working as an arranger for me on this project. And so uh, where, where there were, he, he got to flex some creative muscles and then I reined him in and we had that very conversation same conversation that we were having earlier that we have with clients but it was great because Mm -hmm. we were both very musically adept and so we could handle it and figure out where we were coming from and so uh Mm -hmm. um but in addition you're also managing uh personalities (laughs) that's that's the main real gig with producing it's managing personalities and and organizing organizing the studio booking the musicians and uh making sure that everything's working. Um, but if you're an arranger, you can often get into this role, thrust into this role, because you will have your musical wits about you. Or as a musical director on a live gig, being a music director involves a lot of arranging because you are the person making the decisions on 
how the flow and the energy of the tune happens. Uh, you usually have great musicians at your side, but ultimately you are responsible for the whole presentation of it. And that is a huge arranging task. It can be really easy to glamorize some of these things. Like, you know, being a producer is like this kind of, whoa, that's crazy status. But, you know, in all reality, it's a ton of work. So you... Uh, it is. It's a job at the end of the day. You might have some glamorous aspects that, that come out of it, but... but uh, only only after the hard work is done. Yes, 100%. 100%, yes. So to switch gears a little bit, this is something that I do a lot more of. This is, you know, this is another significant part of my income, which is just teaching, you know, um, teaching private lessons, teaching at a, a school or a university, teaching master classes in clinics, doing online teaching. So this is... Uh, this is something that I think is fairly accessible to most musicians who work professionally, which is is the nice thing. Um, if you play an instrument and arrange and compose, you know that gives you a wider net of uh, possible students, possible teaching gigs. But you know you can pick up anything from like a one day a week part time gig teaching at a school directing a big band, teaching private lessons at a store or a, or a uh, music school organization from a full-time gig as a band director or, or, or as a teacher in a non-traditional music school or as a music professor. I mean, there's a lot of different options out there. I personally find this to be a very rewarding avenue to both learn and to um, contribute to other people's learning. Yeah, even though it's not as common to have arranging students as it is saxophone or piano or any instrument, you'll find students who want to learn about composition or uh, want to learn about arranging. It's more common in high school and in universities um, because you just need a basic understanding of musical vocabulary, scales, and technique before you can really start to comprehend music on a more global level, which is required for composition. But that is uh, another avenue of making a living as an arranger and uh, certainly a rewarding one and one that I'm going to be finding myself in in just a few weeks as I'll be teaching up at University of Northern Colorado. And so I'll be in this boat uh, very much so. <laughs> yeah, and you know, um, once you uh, develop a reputation as an educator... You can jump into the master classes and clinic scene, which if you, you know, again, if you earn the respect of the uh, educational community, you can, you can make some very good money doing this. You, and you can also get the opportunity to, to travel, which is something that I find very, very cool. With a master class in the clinic, you really have to be an expert at what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Or you have to have a niche where you're you're kind of a master at whatever it is you do. It doesn't have to be everything, but like uh, going to college every year, you'd have guest artists come and do master classes. And uh, I know Drew and I have both done some degree of this work, and it's fun. You know, it's fun to feel like you're inspiring students and um, doing what you do and being appreciated for it, without a doubt. And I can safely say that. Part of our own interest in teaching and giving back to the uh, arranging community because so much has given been given to us with our mentors, uh, namely Rich DeRosa and and many others. Um, but uh, uh, 
this podcast is certainly an overflow of that for us. The Arrangers podcast is is uh, our um, small uh, yet heartfelt attempt of uh, sharing what we know with the community at large in what seems to be that there isn't a whole lot of discussion on this topic. There's some great YouTube channels that sometimes cover arranging, but uh, not a lot of uh, topics that have that are squarely focused on composition and arranging. Uh, Orchestration online on YouTube is a great is, is is a great resource, and and there's several other ones. But we're we're working on it in in our own way with this podcast, ain't we, Aaron? We are. And one thing that occurred to me as I was leaving school and figuring out, you know, how I'm precedent for teaching arranging, even though there's not much of a you know, everyone takes sax lessons, trumpet lessons, violin lessons, voice lessons, piano lessons. That's completely normal for people. But it's not that normal to do arranging lessons, composition lessons. Mm-hmm. So if you're the guy that can do that, and if you're you know savvy enough to market it and to build it up over time, you might be the guy who does that. I have saxophone students that come to me wanting to learn jazz saxophone, but part of the reason that they came to me is because they've heard my arrangements and they want to learn some jazz arranging skills as well. So it's one of those things where it's kind of like, it kind of sets you apart as a teacher. If if someone wants to kind of explore arranging as well as playing, you could be somebody who gives them the dual experience and that can be, uh, one reason why you're the the person for them. Well said. Well said. Only a, a few more uh, buckets to dip into as we've 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 done our best to cover all the ways you can make money and and hopefully that it will inspire you writers out there or maybe some of you non writers out there to get on this wonderful way of helping your income as a freelance musician. And one of the less glamorous ones <laughs> that I've been a big part of, and and uh, is is that is that is of copy work. There's mm-hmm. actually nothing really arranging about it, other than being an arranger. You have to know how to make good manuscript for your music notation. And so, th- when I was talking about musical theater, you have a composer, an arranger, and an orchestrator, and often a separate copyist. Um, who takes the orchestrator's work and then prepares it for the musicians. And uh, sometimes it pays really well, and other times it's uh, mediocre. (laughs) But um, it can be a way of supplanting income when work is low. I've done a number, a bit of copy work for musical theater companies and uh, a few other arrangers who don't want to do their own copy work, and so they either pay out of their own pocket or part of the commission fee is for the copy work, so they don't have to do that. It's labor-intensive, and it's very detail-oriented, but it can be uh, rewarding in that it can get you faster at your own copy work chops when you have time to do your own projects. And um, it's another way of earning clients' trust, and sometimes that can lead to other gigs, uh, like doing orchestration for them and these sort of things. It can also be a way that you um, can uh, sort of apprentice with a established composer, for example. Yes, uh, yes. You might offer, you might be fresh out of college, you know, nothing to lose. You might offer a well-known composer that is, you know, that's in your circle 
um, to do some copy work for free for a while as their assistant, as just a uh, apprenticeship or as a um, internship. And, you know, of course, you can't go on doing that for the rest of your career. But if you're young and you just you need to get some experience, make some connections, it can be a good way to learn. So, um, again, I wouldn't, you know, load your plate up with free work, but it can be a great way to build relationships, earn the trust of the uh, the scene and learn a lot along the way, too. And uh, like you said, if it's a good composer, you have access to their score and you can study it while you do the copy work, which can be quite enjoyable as well. Good point. Good point. Personal projects are another way that you can both spend and make money. I'll say that because, um, <laughs> because it's a personal project, you have to find some kind of funding for it, whether that's from a grant or from a donor or just you saved up over five years and... Finally, you have enough money to make it happen, or you mm-hmm. pay, you know, bit by bit, you, you know, pay one studio day at a time. Or crowdsourcing, like Kickstarter and Indiegogo. Right. Personal projects are great because, first of all, you know, they help establish your identity as a musician, which is an asset because you don't hire John Williams because he's a good orchestrator. You hire him because he is John Williams. He has an identity. Right. And... You know, you you don't get John Williams when you hire someone else. You can only get one John Williams. And so that's that's what, to me, what personal projects can help you accomplish is developing your personal style. And we've both done this, recording your own album, for example. Not only do you learn a lot along the way, you also have something to show for it, and you can distribute that. Oftentimes, you might be giving away these CDs for free. People say that, Nowadays, CDs are like a business card that just costs a lot of money to, to make, but they're really good <laughs> business cards. That's the thing, because yeah. they they don't just have your contact information. They actually show who you are. They also indicate a level of seriousness about the craft, that you're willing to invest that much money into your own project, that you are serious about being a professional musician, and uh, people take you with a different degree of seriousness. Absolutely. So if you feel like you have an idea for a personal project, you can put on a concert and sell tickets. If you have a reputation that's, uh, that's high enough, um, you can sell your recordings either online or CDs at, you know, at, at shows. You could sell merch if you have some, you know, t-shirts or something you want to make. Uh, you know, you could travel and tour and try to make some money on, on that. So yeah, I mean it's it's not an easy thing. I mean, you know, you're going to be spending a lot of money to make these projects happen, but if you're business savvy and you have a good product, you could potentially in the long run, you could potentially make some of this money back. Right. Right. It's all an investment and uh often a worthwhile one because at the end of the day, whether it pays out or not, hopefully you're proud of your music that you've written and you've gotten a chance to record it and express yourself and do something meaningful, um, more meaningful and hopefully than playing a video game or, or, or uh, even a memorable vacation. That is wonderful, but there's something very specific and joyful about expressing yourself musically and uh, sharing that. And so um, I think that's a beautiful note to end on, Aaron. We hope that this was uh, helpful 
thought-provoking, inspiring. Certainly, Drew and I are just two guys trying to make a living at music, and, and these are some of the uh, various ways that we've kind of sought out to do that. Yeah, and the fun of it is, is and the stress of it, might I add, is that it's always changing. <laughs> yeah. It's always evolving, and uh, when, as we're at different stages in our careers, the income streams change, and uh, while this is the majority of the pie for both of us, um, we also make a living performing gigs and uh, teaching other kinds of lessons other than arranging lessons, and so it's, uh, it's always changing, and like I, like I said, that's the fun of it and also the stress of it, but we hope that we've, it's been helpful for y'all today. So, uh, with that being said... Thanks again for listening. As always, we very much appreciate it. If you have any follow-ups, um, any other particular thoughts on this topic or questions you have, send them to thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, we will uh, see you for the next episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to find us on Facebook and on Twitter with the handle at thearrangerspod. Happy writing, and hope to see you next time.